Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening, the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks, we present a series of exclusive interviews with L.A. Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John takes us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case, through the trial, and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10, 2022. In our last installment, John concluded his assessment of Durst's testimony under Dick DeGaron's direct examination, offered some general thoughts about his approach to cross-examining the defendant, and told the story of how he lured the defense into making a foolish strategic blunder. In today's episode, John and I begin our deep dive into his cross-examination of Bob with a conversation about the first day of that cross. That's coming up right after the break. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. A few quick program notes. Because the interviews had to be conducted by phone during one of John's early morning or late evening neighborhood hikes along a busy coastal road, the quality is often not optimal. We will clarify when it seems critical to understanding Lewin's narrative. Also, we are going to change up the format a bit. Sometimes, before I ask Lewin about a specific section of his cross-examination of Robert Durst, we will play that section as it was presented in our Jury Duty podcast. But before we began our deep dive, there was one other incident that I had to get Lewin's perspective on. The moment where he volunteered to change Robert Durst's catheter bag, which we covered in Season 2, Bonus Episode 5 of this podcast. This incident that I wanted to talk to you about was sure. your changing of Bob's catheter bag and their response, particularly DeGaron's response. <laughs> so I knew that I was being portrayed as this bully, etc. So that's in the back of my mind. But the bottom line is, Bob has a full catheter bag, and I am concerned that it's going to end up, it's not being changed, that it's the weight, it's going to aggravate whatever he's got going on. It's going to aggravate the infection. Is it going to back up? And we're going to lose court time. I don't want that. The other thing is, is that, you know, it needed to be done. Bob's on trial for murder, but, you know, you got to be humanity says change is bad. So I had simply said to them repeatedly, hey, you need to watch his bag. And nothing was happening. So now I notice the thing is completely full. I tell him, hey, the bag needs to be changed. And literally Dick's response is, well, I'm not doing it. And I said, well, someone needs to do it. I said, well, if you're not going to do it, I'll do it. He's okay. So I end up changing the catheter bag. When we go back to change it, I get his permission. Bob doesn't know what's going on. So I walk back there with Washington, and Bob has a startled look on his face. He doesn't know what's going on. Why am I back here? I said to him, Bob, listen, your catheter bag is full. I'm concerned that, you know, it's causing you pain, 
and discomfort and that it could be a problem. I want to empty it. All I'm going to do, I'm going to hold it over the toilet, lift the valve. I'm just here to help you. It's up to you. Do you want me to change it or not? And he says, ah, go ahead. And I changed it. So then I go back, I put it on the record, and Dick, who just doesn't have a clue, says, this in front of everybody after you've refused. So basically you've got, he's being paid, they're being paid $10, $12 million, and the prosecutor is taking care of their client. And Dick's response is, in front of everybody, not not privately, which, you know, would have been fine. I hope you washed your hands. And I just thought, are you kidding me? So that's what happened. Then you later had Bob make the comment of something like, his bag is filled up at another point. I offered to change it. And Bob made a comment in open court, something effective, that he didn't want me to do it because it would be harder when he took me apart later on cross. Like, he didn't want me to be nice to him. I'm pretty confident that's never happened before and will never happen again. A lot of nevers that will never happen in this case, that's one of them. That will never happen again. You'll never see that. Would you lay out for me what your strategy was going into cross-examining Bob after the defense finished their direct examination of him? So direct was a complete rehash of what he had done in Galveston. It was literally the same game plan. And that game plan is Bob's a poor little rich boy and he runs because he doesn't know better and very sad and money never made him happy. And Bob's on the spectrum, so shit he does and things he says he's not responsible for. That's where they went. So all of it was bullshit, obviously, with one exception. My only concern with a jury was going to be that some juror, even though it wouldn't relate to the crime, would feel sorry for Bob because, let's face it, his mom did die when he was a very little boy, when he was seven. That's a true statement. That's not made up. She died. He didn't see it, but it doesn't matter. And my concern was that talking about the stuff with his mom, that there could be some jurors who were feeling sorry for him. So on direct, as soon as he made the comment about playing Frisbee and Uno, I immediately knew that's bullshit. The Frisbees, Frisbees the late 50s, and I, and I don't think Uno was anywhere near that point. So we look it up. We know we're right. We write our motion. We don't tell the defense. And then right beforehand, we file our motion, telling the judge we're going to ask him to take judicial notice of the time. And the defense is horrified. So my goal, what I'm going to do is, is I know that there are some jurors who've listened to Bob's story and they feel sorry for him. And I know that in a few minutes, they're going to realize that the story that made them feel sorry for him, there are two of them. Number one, the playing Daddy and Douglas and Bobby and Mommy and Uno and Frisbee. That's a complete lie. It's demonstrably untrue. Cannot be true. So now they're going to realize, oh, my God, he literally is lying about his mom's death. He's making it up to get us to feel sorry for him. And I know that's going to backfire terribly because I know how jurors are. And they don't like when they feel like they have bought a story. They tend to get very upset when they realize they've been manipulated. The second story that I knew instantly when I heard it was Bob mixed up and said it was his grandfather who took him and said, wave bye to mommy. Now, there's no way that you're going to mix up who it was. There's no way you're going to likely forget that memory either. So that's a memory that's either true or it's a manufactured lie. So I had the two emotional hooks that he used, and I wanted to make sure that very early that I destroyed him on it. And that's what I did very quickly. I hit him up with those stories, and I watched the jurors, and you could just see the look of disgust. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. In the next part of my conversation with John Lewin, we begin our deep dive into the first day of his cross-examination of Robert Durst, which we covered in Season 2, Episode 21 of this Jury Duty podcast. When you started your cross, you pretty quickly got into Bob's memory and his telling the truth, and you were zeroing in on, if you'd killed Kathy, would you tell me? Well, if we go so, first of all, the only defense they're going to have for all Bob's lies is he has a bad memory. Now, the problem is it's the opposite. One, he has a, a pretty good memory, but what's most important is he testifies as if he's got a perfect memory because he's making it up. So I wanted to establish, hey, you've got a great memory. And so once I did that, one of the big bungles of the case is that my memory is, it's one of the first things that he did on direct, is he asked Bob if he killed Susan and he killed Kathy. Now, listen, that is, in my opinion, never a good question if you have a prosecutor who knows what they're doing, because I will come back. And this is a question that I came up with about 20 years ago. It was my question. I, you know, it's not like I saw it somewhere and thought, you know what? Boy, why do they ask, why do these defense attorneys ask their clients, in essence, the question of, you know, did you rape her? Did you steal that car? Did you kill your wife? Whatever it might be. Why do they ask that question? Because, of course, the answer is going to be no. Well, what if I ask a question of, hey, if you had done that, would you tell us? Now, as I think we talked about before, the way that I do cross-examination is not the way they write it in the book. I don't ask a bunch of leading questions. I don't try to, quote, take control. I spend time trying to figure out what questions can I ask where there are no good answers, where there are going to be narratives and where they will open themselves up to more lies and more problems. So normally, you'll get an objection. If you have a good judge, what I'm going to say is, judge, listen, they open the door. And this is true. Think about it for a second. Judge, they're asking, they brought the question up, not me. Did you kill your wife? Their question. Your Honor, I'm certainly, it's certainly a, a reasonable question since they're bringing it up for me to say, well, listen, you asked that question. If that question is relevant, then so is my question of, hey, if you had, would you tell us? No, I was in really good shape this trial because I had done that during the New Orleans interview, and they knew the answer. So what Dick was thinking, I will never know. There's no good answer that Bob could have given, and he just set me up to do it again. So I was thrilled that happened. I hit him up. And then, it's funny, over the break, 
apparently they must have talked to Bob. And now he comes back with the hypos that I'm giving. His answer is, I can't answer those hypotheticals because they didn't happen. So as soon as I hear that, and again, this is why you have to be really on top of things. You can't just make notes. You can't just plan on what's going to happen. As soon as I hear that, you know, my immediate question is, wait a minute. You were able to answer my hypotheticals before. The only difference is, so what you're saying is you could answer the hypotheticals before about if you killed Susan, would you tell us? You can answer those because those aren't hypotheticals. That's what you did. He had no good answer. So, yet again, that's an example of one good question from New Orleans turning into 20 good questions and areas of trial. Take me through your exploration of Bob's truthfulness about the allegations of domestic abuse against him. Well, I mean, one of the things I never understood about the defense approach in this case is that the domestic violence was absolutely indisputable. You couldn't argue it. Bob had admitted to it. We had witnesses. It was not something that he could get around. So the smart thing to do is you get up in jury selection and you say, hey, listen, anybody here ever been a victim of domestic violence or know someone who's been with domestic violence? Hands go up. That's absolutely terrible. There's no excuse for it. It's awful. Does everyone understand that there's going to be evidence in this case, and I'm not going to sugarcoat it, Bob Durst abused his wife. He abused her emotionally. He abused her physically. Does anybody think that because Bob Durst did that, that automatically means that he's guilty of the murder of Susan Berman and of killing Kathy Durst? And you see hands raised, yeah. The people that you know, and obviously yourself, anyone here who was a victim of domestic violence or knows somebody, how many people do you know who were actually murdered by their batterer? And Carrie, you would have probably seen zero hands. So everybody agrees then that, listen, although you can have domestic violence, not only does it not mean that the person is going to kill the victim, but that very rarely does that happen. Now, that's a bit of a sneaky move. It's ethical because obviously, although if you look at the percentages, a very small percentage of domestic violence abusers kill their partners, right? But an incredibly high percentage of people who kill their partners, extremely high, have a history of domestic violence against them. But that's what they could have done. Instead, starting in jury selection, even though they know the evidence, they basically do not admit anything about his domestic violence. They cross-examine witnesses minimizing domestic violence. DeGarrett, well, doctor, you've seen a lot worse domestic violence than that, right? So I was amazed at their approach. I knew also that Bob sincerely believed that what he did was not abuse. And what was crazy is, there's two reasons that you can take that approach. One is you're denying that the actions occurred. And although that is a risky strategy, if the other side can prove the actions occurred, that is overall a better approach. Bob's approach was, oh no, I did all these things, but that's not domestic violence. And I knew that the jurors would be horrified, not just at what he'd done, but at his view of what abuse was. So, you know, this was yet again another gift by DeGarren and company that I, I was shocked to happen. So my approach, I knew that Bob was going to minimize. I knew that he was going to deny. So I wanted to make sure that that got nailed. If any jurors had forgotten that he would have to, on cross, account for his conduct. 
and there was no good answer for him. Again, a lot of the cross, and I think what I spend a lot of time at, or I think I have some a good combination for my skill set, is that I want to think of questions on cross-examination, open-ended questions, where there are no good answers. And where in answering the question, the person answering is likely to open up more avenues for me. And that's what happened with Bob. He was a never-ending opportunity of fresh targets. Yeah, it was toward the end of that first day of cross that you basically adjusted to his whole, I can't answer a hypothetical tack that he took after the break. At this point in our chat, I read to Lewin a transcript of an exchange between him and Bob Durst towards the end of day one of his cross. We will now play the recording of that exchange drawn from season two, episode 21 of the Jury Duty podcast. Did you tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth during your trial testimony in Galveston? I lied. The trial in Galveston, I said I was in Northern California when Susan Berman was murdered. That was a lie. Is that the only lie you told during that trial? The only one I'm aware of. If you had lied repeatedly in that case, would you tell me right now? Would you admit it? I admit it. So I think, why would I admit something that did not happen? I did not lie repeatedly. I lied once. That's not what I asked you. I want you to assume for a moment that you had lied in other place in Galveston testimony. I just want to ask you, would you admit to us that you had lied? I cannot assume something that didn't exist. It's like asking me to assume the earth is flat and then asking me where it ends. I did not lie, and I cannot assume that I did lie. So you can't be asked a question whether you would lie about something unless the thing you were had lied about it actually happened. Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. So I guess, Mr. Durst, that's why you can tell us that you would lie if you had killed Susan. You would lie if you had killed Kathy. You would lie if you had killed Morris, because in fact, that's not a hypothetical. That's what you did. That is not what I did. So please explain. You just told me a moment ago that I can't answer your hypothetical, Mr. Lewin, because it's a hypothetical and that didn't happen. Yet, you answered my hypotheticals previously before the break. I asked you, if you had killed Susan, would you tell us? You said no. If you had killed Kathy, would you tell us? You said no. If you had killed Morris, if you had murdered Morris, would you tell us? You said no. Now I ask you a hypothetical and you say, I can't answer that hypothetical because it did not happen. You said, yes, that's correct. So my question is then, by your own analysis and reasoning, you are able to answer the hypotheticals about whether you killed Kathy, whether you killed Susan, and whether you murdered Morris, because that's not a hypothetical. It's exactly what happened. And you know, as you sit here, you know whether you would lie about it or not because it happened, correct? It did not happen. Tell me what the vibe felt like between you and Bob as you went through that. Well, so 
One of the important things that a lot of times lawyers do not do, they have an outline of where they want to go, and they actually don't listen to the answers that they're given. And that kind of goes along with the traditional approach of cross-examination that lawyers have. The traditional approach, and you'll hear famous trial lawyers say this, I don't care what the answer is. It's all about my question. I always thought that was both stupid and arrogant. Jurors aren't stupid. When you are controlling a witness like that, it doesn't seem fair. You're much better off letting a witness answer and then having them dig a hole. So that's what I do. So it was no accident. And I spent a year on this thing. When we were in the pandemic, I was working 60, 70 hours a week on this case because I wanted it right. The magic moments in this trial, they didn't happen because, you know, our team lucked into them. We made them happen. Just about every good moment was a result of thought and questions to push Bob where we knew we could push him and for him to make a mistake. So I obviously did not know what was going to happen at the break. I didn't know Bob was going to come back and change. But when Bob said that, I'm listening, and I instantly can see that Bob has made not just a blunder, but a fatal, deadly mistake. Because what they decide to do, and this is typical for the defense, they think at level one because they're lazy. Level one as well, just don't answer the question. Just tell them you can't answer because it's hypothetical. Well, they're not thinking level three and four, which is, well, if I say that, what's the prosecutor going to do? I don't think they ever had any idea because I don't think they're particularly talented lawyers. So as soon as I heard it, that was my opening. I had it, and, you know, I moved quickly. I know the skills I have and the weaknesses that I have. If it comes down to myself and a witness having to think quickly and adjust, it's kind of like this. If you're a quarterback, I have a good offense, and I'm going to run good plays. But I'm going to very quickly see how you're lined up, and if I get an opportunity, I will audible at the line, and I will change what I'm doing based on what you're doing. And I have supreme confidence that I can adjust quicker than the witness can. So a big point, again, is it's not just about winning the battle. It's about deciding and shaping what the battle's going to be. So I wanted the battle to be Bob up there answering narrative questions and then him having to adjust to his answers and me having an opportunity to adjust to his answers. I was very confident that the team and I would win that battle every time. So that's what happened. So what was my feeling when Bob said that? Well, you can tell, you know, there was no hesitation. I heard it. I knew what I had, and I moved in for the kill. And it was a kill. It was over quick. You know, his throat was slit, and there was nothing he could do. That basically was another confession in the case. So he took a problem, which was typical for Bob in the defense. He has a problem with something he said earlier. So what he's going to do is he's going to fix it by saying X. And he never figured out, and they never figured out, that every single time, literally, Every single time he tried to fix X, he made it worse. Sometimes he made it a little worse, and sometimes it was deadly. This was a deadly mistake. I think it was a very obvious mistake. And, of course, he had no answer. The jurors knew what was going on. And everybody watching knew what was going on. Because Bob's basically saying, hey, listen, I can't answer a hypothetical because it didn't happen. Well, he answered the other one, 
So the only difference is that must mean that did happen. It's not a hypothetical. So, yeah, I was thrilled. I have no idea. I remember what my face looked like, but I'm guessing, as you can probably see, I look like a leopard who just found a little baby antelope by himself. You know, I mean, I'm going to definitely eat right now, and it's going to be quick. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us on our next episode as John Lewin and I continue our deep dive into day one of his cross-examination of the defendant, Robert Durst. Also, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. <laughs>